my son, who's nine years old, Austin Elijah Campbell, whom we've nicknamed Cozy since the day of his birth, has shared that he feels called to be a pastor. So pray for me. (laughs) He will join me in this online ministry that I started about a year and a half ago called LiveBible.tv, which will just preach the gospel to the pagan internet. And he'll join me and give these insights that, that amaze me. It'll be stuff that I haven't shared with him for like years. Like he, was, he didn't look up from his Lego set at the time, but then it just came out of him while, while preaching. And so uh, it's, it's remarkable to hear all of my kids and whom I see the Holy Spirit working discuss spiritual things among themselves. Because sometimes they'll get sidetracked with these cute little heresies. And I'll have to bring scripture to bear to correct them. And right now they're at an age where they all readily accept correction from scripture and immediately just change their minds upon the presentation of new evidence straight from the Bible. Now, I've, I was a youth pastor for many years, so I know it's coming. So I'm enjoying this phase where there's no, there's no argument whatsoever. It's just scripture and then they immediately will correct their thinking. But it's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. I can see... Spirit at work in my children, and, and that, that rivets me and also puts the pressure on because Austin is light years ahead of where I was when I was his age, and he seems so gifted and so anointed in this that I just know what I'm doing right now. I know that I, uh, I, I know that I'm not going to let him do to my bride and I what we did to our parents, and that is move diagonally across the continent. And so he's going to have to answer this call somewhere in proximity to us, which means that I am currently teaching the better preacher down the street. Just he'll, he'll, take, his, he'll take his platform in, in like 25 years. <laughs> so, so there's a day coming where, yeah, 25 years from now, if you guys choose to go to Austin's church instead of this one, I, I won't blame you. We'll be better preaching there. <laughs> this is... The book of First Timothy. Last week, we saw the qualifications for an elder, overseer, a pastor, and the qualifications for the diaconate. And now in chapter 4, beginning on page 992 in the Bibles and the Seats with you, Paul's going to shift to focus more on Timothy himself. So the previous chapter, and much of the previous content in this book, has been about the people around Timothy as he pastors the large church in the city of Ephesus. But now chapter 4 zooms in on Timothy's own heart. One of the most important works that a pastor can do is working not necessarily on his sermon, but on his own heart to prepare the preacher more than he prepares the sermon itself. So 1 Timothy chapter 4 zooms in on Timothy's own heart. Watch the shift take place. It's, it's fascinating. Chapter 3 gave the qualifications for elders and overseers. Titus will get a similar list of qualifications, but Timothy's context and Titus's context are slightly different. Timothy's pastoring an established church in Ephesus. Titus is trying to get a burgeoning church going on the island of Crete. So Timothy as Paul predicted in Acts chapter 20, saw the elder board infiltrated by snakes who were deceived and gave false teachings. And so Timothy's work was to weed out the false teachers from among the church. 
Titus's work, however, was to set the bar high and call people unto it. You aspire unto this office, you aspire unto a noble thing. So both Timothy and Titus were given the same tool or a similar tool in qualifying elders and deacons. However, their contexts were different. Timothy was calling out the false teachers. Titus was building an elder board. Now, Paul gets personal. Look at chapter 4 with me. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. While bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's a potent chapter. Look to verse 1 with me. Now, the Spirit expressly says, I believe Paul, in these intriguing words, is giving us insight into the inspiration process. The moment that what the Spirit lays on his heart becomes scripture, he has invited us into. It reminds me of 1 Peter 1, 21, or for 2 Peter 1, 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He receives this word from the Holy Spirit of God, records it in scripture, and thus the word is revealed. And Paul gives us a glimpse into that very process. The Spirit expressly says, in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. All right, Pastor Jesse, I brought my friend to church, and you're talking about demons. And it's weird, and now I'm self-conscious. Like, why can't you talk about normal things? When I bring my friends to church who are skeptical of the faith, all right, you need to read ahead, man. This is in the text. I'm bound to it. It's what the Bible says. This, this teaching of demons, this was the later time. This is, this is the era between the ascension of Jesus to heaven in Acts 1 
and the return of Jesus prophesied in Revelation and Daniel and 2 Thessalonians and elsewhere in Scripture. We are in these later times now. It is biblically predicted that people would leave the faith, depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. When Satan speaks, he lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. He is very skilled at lying. And so these deceitful, demonic teachings are ubiquitous, but how can you discern them? How can you tell what is, what is of God and what is demonic? Right? This, this is, a, this is a, an excellent litmus test. You will know that something is demonic if it defies the word of God. Right? You will know that something is not of God if it defies his word. This is the primary means by which God speaks to us. Right here. He has spoken. That's why it's called his word. Right? He gives, he's given us of his spirit as a down payment on our hearts, a deposit guaranteeing our, our inheritance in him. He speaks to us through his Holy Spirit, but the primary means by which God speaks is the primary means by which God has already spoken. It's the word of God. If there is a given teaching and you find it enticing, would you ask the question, does it invite you to abide and remain in sin? Is this given teaching inviting you to enjoy sin and not repent from it? Is it an excuse to continue in sin? If so, it is demonic. Does this teaching tell you that your banal proclivities, those desires within your flesh that you want to indulge in, that these things are not only not sinful, but even truer, gooder, more eternal manifestations of who you are, that you are defined by this very sin, and so it is a good thing, and you ought not deny it. That is utterly demonic. If it is calling you to not repent, it is definitely demonic. The demonic teaching will sound delectable. It will also make you the hero of the story instead of Jesus. A demonic teaching will make you elevate yourself. Hey, listen, if you do this extra pharisaical work, you can ascend. You can earn something. You can elevate yourself by your own standing. You are the hero. You can save yourself. This is directly contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Directly contrary to what Paul established in the very beginning of this book, 1 Timothy 1, 15. The series of phrases marked throughout the pastoral epistles. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If a teaching denies total depravity, it makes you the hero and diminishes your need for a savior, you can tell that that teaching is demonic. You can also just observe the fruits of it. Observe the fruits of a given teaching. When that teaching is implemented, what results from it? If it is repentance from sin, if it is people being led to Jesus, if it is a new ministry, if it is love, if it's joy, if it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is the Holy Spirit of God. If it is anything else, if it is anything else, you can tell that this teaching is demonic. So demonic teachings are, are everywhere. The formula behind a demonic teaching is often the same formula that was used right there in Eden. God's word plus something else. To take the word of God, which God had spoken in Eden, was very clear you are free to eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you must not eat. There it was, the one command that God had given. And Satan, when tempting Eve, took the one thing that God had said and then just added on to it. 
Did he really say this? No, God didn't really say this. He would take it, he would contort it, add on to it, and eventually outright defy it. This is what the serpent did in Eden. This is what the serpent does today. To take the word of God and attempt to add something onto it. To take the word of God and contort it. To take the word of God and then outright utterly defy it. This was the demonic voice in Eden. This is the demonic voice today. To take the word of God and add on to it. Add on the watchtower. The publication, the magazine used by Jehovah's Witnesses. Who are forbidden from reading scripture on their own. You know, there's a reason for that. There was a mass revival among Jehovah's Witnesses years ago because people showed up at a convention and said, just read the Bible. Several Jehovah's Witnesses present just read the Bible. Not the Watchtower, only the Bible. And gave their lives to Jesus and were saved. All right, demonic teaching would take the word of God and add something onto it. The, the demonic teaching would take the word of God and add on the Book of Mormon. We take the word of God and add on the Quran. The Quran was intended to be an addendum onto the book of Revelation. Anything that takes the word of God and adds on to it, the word of God plus something, this is the formula behind several pagan faiths. You'll notice that the, the, the ability to create, the creative faculty lies exclusively with God. Satan does not have the power to create anything. Rather, what Satan does exclusively is contort God creates something and it is good, and Satan will take it and contort it. God will create food and it is good, and Satan will take it and, and contort it unto gluttony. God will create intimacy between husband and wife, and Satan will take it and contort it and produce lust. He cannot create anything. He can only contort that which God has created. So Satan will take something that is good and defile it. As we get more and more accustomed to this, we can find ourselves reflected in verse 2 through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Consciences are seared. This word seared, all right, how many of you use wood pellet grills? All right, a few of you. Excellent. Right, uh, lump charcoal, big green egg. All right, a few of you. All right, how many of you use the griddle? Uh, like the outdoor griddle surface kind of grill. Right on, right on. All right, how, how many of you use propane grills? I'm going to pray for your salvation. <laughs> All right, the, the, way that you, you, the way that you grill a steak properly, and when I say steak, I mean a ribeye, obviously. Okay, we practice sound doctrine in this church. Okay. Marinated in olive oil and some garlic to the glory of God. I love garlic. It's like this delicious apologetic because animals don't often eat it. It's just prepackaged tablespoon doses of deliciosity. And it just comes out of the ground. Olive oil and garlic and some herbs, large chunks of salt, you know, marinate it. And then you get the you know, you get the fire pot and your wood pellet grill going really, really hot, as hot as you can, and then you just put the steak directly onto it, and you hear that loud, that blessed anointed sizzle, you know what I'm talking about? A fragrant offering raised up to the heavens. <laughs> and then you flip it and you sear the other side, you know? What's happening when, when you sear a steak like this? It's called the Maillard effect. 
It's similar to the browning effect that takes place in breads. Even like some pretzels, for example, are browned on the outsides with, uh, with lye painted on them. But this is different. And, this mo- and in the searing of meat, all the, the tetrapyral rings of myoglobin all rush to the edges to create this crust that seals the juices within it. And so because you've seared it, then you can t- put it on indirect heat, close the torch, lower the heat, and smoke it so that you get the, the outer sear, that crust that locks the juices within it, and then you, you can cook the rest of it on the inside. But that crust, that outer edge, that's what Paul is describing when he uses the word seared here. Right? That is the, the cauterization of a heart that desensitizes it and makes it crusted. Have you, have you felt this happen in your own heart before? Can you be brutally honest and real? Is there, is there anything in your life that like, you've allowed to persist, a behavior you've allowed to continue that you know doesn't line up with the word of God? And there was a time when it used to convict you for your sin, but you've become increasingly desensitized. And you've allowed yourself to just tolerate more and more of this sin. And it's cropped up to the point that like now you no longer are convicted on the matter. And you can allow these behaviors to persist and not feel the need to repent anymore. If that's you, if that's you, would you pray to the Holy Spirit of God to regenerate your heart so that once again your heart would break when you do something that is wrong? Restore you back to that beautiful place where you're convicted for sin and you're brought to repentance. The Holy Spirit of the living God is able to fully regenerate, not in part, but completely make you new once more. If your conscience has been seared and you find yourself tolerating things that you've long known are wrong, would you ask God to regenerate your heart? Look to verse 3 with me. These demonic liars with seared consciences would forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Now, the, the forbidding of marriage, some of us would, in, our, in our, our own context, immediately think about the Catholic Church's forbidding of certain priests from marrying and seeing the colossal heartache this has caused, how it's overtly unbiblical, and how it has also created this breeding ground for unspeakable sin to propagate. Right? My heart goes out because I do know sincere brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the Catholic Church. But this particular teaching is overtly unbiblical to forbid marriage. Right? This is, this is only served to destroy. Here's the original context, however. We think Catholic Church priests who were forbidden from marriage and all the horrible practices that have happened there. But in the original context, the original recipients, it was actually a Gnostic teaching. The Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, Gnostics, divided among the Epicureans and the Stoics, would forbid marriage because it was the means by which God created the sexual desire to serve a biblical and beautiful purpose. And by removing that sexual urge from its proper God-ordained context, it made people more likely to stumble It was a Gnostic teaching to forbid marriage. What about this? What about the uh, abstaining from certain foods which God had created as good? Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. This abstinence from certain foods that God created to be good, this is a similar lesson to what Peter learned. 
Peter, when he was brought to Simon's house, was confronted multiple times with this vision and and rebuke, saying, don't call common that which God has made clean. All of these things are now in the New Testament era, officially on the menu. And from here, Peter is then ushered to Cornelius' house to be shown that the Holy Spirit of God poured out upon Gentiles just as he had upon Jews in Acts chapter 2. This was to confront a prejudice within Peter's heart in which he would sometimes step back into Old Testament dietary law and abstain from foods which God had overtly articulated to Peter are now on the menu, are made clean, and may be received with thanksgiving. This is, a, this is a prideful thing. Legalism often produces pride, and that's the point. A demonic teaching would have you abstain from something that is perfectly permitted by God and having you indulge in something that is perfectly forbidden by God. You would, you would abstain from something, okay? Living in Seattle as a Mormon, being forbidden from drinking coffee, that is obviously demonic. <laughs> and so you would pride yourself in the fact, hey, I'm not drinking coffee. Yeah, but you're worshiping demons and you're, you're forsaking the word of God. Like you have all these other rampant sins happening in your life, but yeah, at least you don't drink coffee. Can you see the delusion this creates in the mind? Because I don't drink coffee, I'm really, really righteous. Sure, I've got a billion other sins going on, but look how righteous I am for not drinking coffee. Meanwhile, the coffee abstinence thing is meaningless. This is a demonic teaching. It produces pride in your heart. Because I'm abstaining from things that God has allowed, it makes me more righteous than people who indulge in that thing. It creates a false sense of self-righteousness. Meanwhile, the roots of the demonic teaching just further entangle and choke the life out of this poor deceived heart. Meanwhile, they will openly participate in practices that God has overtly forbidden. Demonic teaching would have you abstain from things that God has given and have you participate in things that God has forbidden. And all the while, thinking yourself more and more righteousness. And the more righteous you think you are, the deeper you become entrenched in deception and sin. This is the way that demonic teaching has always worked. It's for this reason that Paul gives the call to sound doctrine in verse 6. And the, and the, the harsh words of verse 7 have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths, right? Now, verse 8 is funny. I saw a guy who had the first half of verse 8 tattooed on his gargantuan tree trunk-sized bicep, right? Bodily training is of some value, right? I had to bring this up. I I had to. You know me. I had to ask him about this. I figured he would answer to bro, and he did. (laughs) Hey, bro. (laughs) Hey, bro, uh, did you know there's a second half to that verse? And uh, let's, let's look at that together, okay? Bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. All right, all of the gains you get on your, your, your human body, your temporary body, I mean, like they do have some value, okay, but they all go away the moment you get hit by a bus. 
However, King County Mass Transit Authority has nothing on the eternal work of disciple making, okay? Meaning all of your trips to the gym, all of your abstinence from certain foods, like all of your adherence to a strict diet, all of your hours upon hours upon hours running while nobody's chasing you, all of that (laughs) goes away instantly with a loud honk and a screech, okay? Hours of work erased. Oh, but, but everything you do to make disciples of Jesus Christ is eternal in nature and can never be undone, cannot be taken away, is of eternal scope. So it's true, Brad, right? Your work in the gym is of some value, but it's only before you kick the bucket Rather, if you train yourself in godliness, making disciples of Jesus Christ, then what you do lasts forever. So I said, look, I showed him the verse, and the cognitive dissonance was just really heavy within his bro brain. And I was like, it's okay, Brad. You can complete the tattoo, and you can come join my church. And he did, and he led us in this really cool ministry. Right, it was excruciating because we were running around the building carrying cinder blocks. <laughs> but then I would couple that with a teaching from, teaching from Isaiah. So he called it hardcore church, and it, and it was indeed. <laughs> so it's true, bodily training has some value, but that is, that is only prior to the proverbial kicking of the proverbial bucket, Right? So this is this is a <laughs> this is one of those where if it's your life verse, make sure you make sure you know both halves of it. We're going to come up on another one of those even here in this text, right? Even even within this very passage, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Do you see that in verse nine? Have you noticed that theme? Have you heard that before in First Timothy? This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You're going to hear it multiple times throughout the pastoral epistles. Paul was training Timothy and Titus. And zooming in on specific teachings that were very valuable unto the pastorate itself. In the beginning of the chapter, he told us, 1 Timothy 1, 15, uh, Christ came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And now, in a similar theme, verse 9 gives us that same preface. And verse 10 gives us this different teaching. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Especially of those who believe. Man, this is... This is utterly vital. We just saw the reason for our toil, the reason for our striving, the reason that we do what we do. Just articulated perfectly in the text. And some of you, some of you may have been asking this very question, what is the point of it all? What is the purpose of everything? I mean, like if you, if you read Ecclesiastes without a Christian worldview, you can, it can leave you really bummed, like everything is just meaningless, meaningless. What is the point of all the endless striving, all the endless labor and toil? The Christian, the adherent to the New Testament, believer in the book of 1 Timothy, we know exactly what it is because we have our hope set. See the word hope? Only the gospel of Jesus Christ offers 
hope. And do you notice how he describes our God? Living God. I've seen the ashes of one of the supposed incarnations of Buddha. Dude is dead. I've seen his ashes. Siddhartha died. Buddha died. Right? Muhammad died. But the tomb of Jesus is empty. We serve the living God. And if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We serve a living God. He is alive. He is alive. He is alive. That is our God. That is the one upon whom our hopes are set. Not a dead God, but the living God. We have hope and our living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. What's up with the especially part? How is he the Savior of the world, but especially for those who believe? Could this be contorted to teach universalism? Here's the thing. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's Romans 10, 9. If you don't confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... You do not believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. You will not be saved. However, there is no other Savior for you but Jesus. So he is your Savior, whether you believe him or not. Apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. He is the Savior of the world, particularly for those who believe in him. So if you were to deny Jesus, there's nobody else you're going to find salvation in. He's the only Savior you have. He is the Savior of all the world, but particularly for everybody who believes in him. If you find yourself in the marketplace of religious worldviews, shopping, window shopping, and that's what brought you here, I'm going to spoil the ending of your shopping endeavors for you. You're not going to find salvation anywhere else but in Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of the world, particularly for those who believe. And may today be the day you believe in him. This is the reason we toil. This is the reason we strive, because of our hope. I led a militant atheist to Christ. And her brother, several months later, expressed to her that his suicidal ideations had grown stronger, and he was beginning to formulate a plan to end his life. And she was in deep distress, and she brought him to my office. He sat on my couch, and he said, all right, I'll, I'll, hear, I'll hear what you have to say, but you have to, you have to do it on my terms. And she was, she was upset with me momentarily when I first responded, well, if I use your worldview as an atheist... There's actually no reason for you to not kill yourself. I can't use your worldview to convince you not to kill yourself because within your worldview, there's actually zero reason to live. And his sister was aghast until she realized that he actually accepted the term. There's no reason to not kill yourself within atheism. But what I offered was this verse instead. For this reason... We toil and strive. Our hopes are set on the living God, who's the savior of the whole world, especially of those who believe. This is why we do what we do. This is why we fill the vocations that God has called us to, because our hopes are set on the living God. 
This is why we are software engineers, rocket scientists, test pilots. You got to be saved if you're a test pilot. This is why, this is why we do what we do. We make disciples of Jesus Christ. Our hopes are set and fixed firmly upon the rock. Our hopes are set upon the living God. He is the savior of the whole world and that motivates everything that we do. Our hopes are set upon him and will not be moved. He is our savior especially because we believe in him. You see, sitting with this atheist who was wrestling with suicide and not knowing why he was wrestling, I thought about Solomon's writing, answer the fool according, answer the fool according to his folly, and simultaneously do not answer the fool according to his folly. In this moment, I had to demonstrate for him the fallacy of his own worldview. There's no reason for you to not kill yourself, and the fact that you haven't yet means you don't really believe in your worldview. You don't believe in your unbelief. You don't actually, you're not actually an atheist, because there's part of you that knows if you kill yourself, you're going to answer to God in judgment for your sin, having denied Jesus the Savior. The only reason you haven't killed yourself yet is you're not really an atheist. He gave a subtle nod. He gave a subtle nod and agreed not to kill himself, and agreed as well that there must be something wrong with his worldview because his worldview could not convince him not to commit suicide. He was taking his worldview, nihilism, to its logical end. That is, nothing has any purpose whatsoever at all. Yet there's a cognitive dissonance there. If nothing has any purpose whatsoever at all, whence then comes love? What is the origin of right and wrong? Why do we have this unction within our hearts to do what is right? And this repulsion in our hearts against what we intuitively know to be wrong. We are born with these consciences that bear remarkable consistency the globe over. And that consistency is also mirrored in only one sacred text in all the world. And that is the law of God. There's no other word that can be found that mirrors this natural inclination in our hearts towards that which is right, that which is wrong. This deep calls us unto deep. And that's what he experienced sitting on that couch. And he agreed not to kill himself until he had tried on for size the Christian worldview, which gives us hope in the living God. This is why you do what you do. Now, verse 12 is sometimes misused. Have you, have you seen this before? If you take only the first half of verse 12... You could use it. I've seen this before. You could use verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, and you could sharpen it. And as, as a jilted, overlooked, underestimated young buck, you could take this verse and stick it to the old people. Have you seen that before? Yeah, 1 Timothy 4.12, A. <laughs> Like, why do we not use the second half of the verse? Why? Oh, man. Well, my fellow young bucks, it's because it it calls us higher, doesn't it? It calls us higher. 1 Timothy 4.12 is not a stick it to the old people verse. It's a young people get your, step your game up verse. It calls young bucks to set an example for the believers in the way that we speak, the way that we live our lives, and the love that we show and our indomitable faith and our unassailable purity that we'd be above reproach. So, so young bucks, if you are living out the second half of 1 Timothy 4.12 with exemplary speech, an exemplary life, exemplary 
faith, to stand in the fire unscathed and faithful to God. If you're living out a life of radical love and purity that is above reproach, there will be no desire in your heart whatsoever to stick at the old people because that would not be exemplary speech if you'd spoke it. That would not be excellent conduct. You would be assailing the faith of somebody else. You'd be acting in, in a very unloving way and you'd be compromising your purity. So because you believe the second half of 1 Timothy 4.12, you will not then use the first half of 1 Timothy 4.12 as a weapon. I interviewed with a church before coming here, 6,000. And after meeting with all 50 of their elders, <laughs> through the whole process, multiple trips out and back, everything went beautifully. Every question was answered to their satisfaction, and we were just waiting to hear back from their elder board, what the answer was. And ultimately, what came out was everybody agreed, look, Jesse, you answered all of our questions, and we, we really believe, you know, you, you, you meet the standard, and, and, and it would be great. It's just that one of our elders spoke up and said, are we really about to hand the keys to a 6,000-member church to a 33-year-old? And so we just ultimately, you know, you're just not old enough yet. And so I, and this is a true story, I said, I'm going to work on my age as fast as I can. <laughs> it tends to change on average once per year. <laughs> and I've made good on that promise. <laughs> and then I had the chance to interview with Highlands Community Church. And praise God. <laughs> praise God. And I, and I asked, all right, is, is age a stipulation in 1 Timothy 3? And they said, no, it is not. <laughs> age is not one of the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3. And for that, this pastor is very, very grateful. <laughs> Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, life, love, faith, and purity. Look at verses 14 through 16 as we close. Do not neglect the gift you have. See the word neglect? Oh, man, some of you just got... Some of you just got convicted. Oh, I've been neglecting the gift. I know I, I'm able to teach, and I had a small group, and then we cranked out a ton of kids, and they all left the house, and I just knew I'd get back and start a small group. I knew I'd lead a group. I knew I'd teach the Bible again, but then, you know, Netflix happened, <laughs> and you've been neglecting the gift, okay? How many of you guys are being convicted right now, like, oh, I've been neglecting this gift. I've been neglecting it. Or you see the word Persist persist in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Doesn't that make your esteem for Dr. Amandus just go up? Because he persisted in it for three decades. Persist. It's, not, it's not enough just to have a good run for a while there. That's not, that's not the standard. Persist in this is the standard. So that by doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Man, we all have a vested interest in guarding our life and doctrine closely, don't we, Highlands Community Church? It's for this reason that i got to keep Austin on the rails. He is prone to error because he's nine, but he loves the Lord. He has the Holy Spirit of God within him, and he abides by the word of God. He's working on his very first sermon. It's going to be Romans 10, 9. So pray that people are saved as my son proclaims the word. In the vast array of everything that Paul has covered, he naturally points out something. He naturally emphasizes verse 10. That our hopes are set on the living God 
who is the savior of the world, especially for those who believe. That's where our hopes are set. The living God is the savior of the world, especially of those who believe. If you barely made it in this room because you're barely hanging on to your life and you are struggling with a reason to live, you are wondering what the point of all the striving is. What is the purpose of my toil and my labor in this life? And you're thinking about ending your life, contemplating suicide, formulating a plan even, maybe even feeling relief as that plan comes together because you're struggling to know what the point is. I believe God called you here to hear from his word the reason why we toil and strive. This is it, that our hopes are set on the living God, who is the savior of the world, especially for those who believe. You were created deliberately and beautifully and intentionally with eternity written upon your heart. You are a beloved child of God if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You were not born into an arbitrary universe. You were written into a loving epic. And this is your chapter. And today's the day that you are saved. Today's the day that you take hold of the life that is truly life. You have a savior and his name is Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And there is no way you can come to God except through him. If you would believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, if you would confess today that he is Lord over your life, that you would repent from sin, you will be saved. You are beloved of God. You are his child. And as the spirit draws upon your heart, you will take hold of the life that is truly life. You will know why we strive. You will know the purpose of life, to set your hopes upon the living God. He is your savior, especially now, as you believe. So if the spirit of God is drawing upon your heart, would you join me in this prayer as we take God's words and pray them to God? God, I believe in you. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, God, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess, God, that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life. And I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the spirit of the living God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say, Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. This is why I toil. This is why I strive. Because my hopes are set upon the living God.
He's the Savior of all the world, especially for me, especially now, because I believe in Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up and worship with us, some of us for the very first time as new believers in Jesus Christ?